Trauma Code to New York City, Trauma Code to WBAI. I am Dr. Simon Fitzgerald, a Brooklyn trauma surgeon and surgical intensivist. And I am Dr. Cassandra Raphael, an adult and child psychiatrist. Welcome to Trauma Code. Together we will focus on healing of mind, body, and community from trauma. We'll discuss how wellness fits into the culture at large. Join us on Monday at 2 p.m. on WBAI. Welcome back to Trauma Code on WBAI. This is Dr. Simon Fitzgerald, and welcome back into the studio, my co-host, Dr. Cassandra Raphael. Dr. Raphael, how are you doing? Good to be here. Um, happy Monday. Happy Monday, everybody listening. Um, I'm doing pretty good, enjoying this beautiful weather in New York City. How are you, Dr. Fitz? Uh, well, doing good today. Uh, of course, we have uh, on the air with us in a little bit uh, Darna Noor for today's episode, Climate Anxiety. Uh, mm. Yeah. So, you know, the, the weather is, is quite beautiful in New York City these days, and we were in Baltimore over the weekend, also beautiful there. Uh, but but definitely a little bit anxiety-inducing. Unseasonably warm, perhaps. Unseasonably warm, yeah. So anyway, while we're, uh, while we're enjoying the weather, we'll have... Uh, uh, Darna is a reporter and I believe an editor of the Climate Desk at the Boston Globe, uh, a paper that's been investing in, in covering the climate crisis, the ongoing climate crisis. Uh, and that music that we opened up with is uh, the, Marvin Gaye. the legendary Marvin Gaye, uh, who this is from the 1971 album, What's Going On, that song Mercy Me or Ecology. Um, a song that obviously I've heard many times in my life, but I didn't really know that it was about climate change until I started looking up a little bit more um, good music for today's show and topic. Um, but, you know, Marvin Gaye clearly way ahead of his time in talking about climate change. But I mean, really, I, I think historically no one is ever really ahead of their time in talking about climate change. But with this record, uh, Mr. Marvin Gaye certainly um, saw some things coming. And, and there's a richness in the in Gay's history that we won't have time to go into. Obviously, he died at 45, just a little bit older than me, shot to death by his father, right. uh, who may have had psychiatric uh, complications related to a brain tumor. It's been speculated. So a richness there, a real American tragedy, um, but definitely the richness also of his voice and the importance of uh, that metaphorical voice in that song, and also just a nice, calm music to come into our discussion uh, of climate anxiety, and I'm someone that I said in the initial episode, admittedly, uh, can <clears throat> can at times almost feel overwhelmed by anxiety um, related mm -hmm. to climate change. And before we get into that discussion of you know w why we have on a discussion of climate on this trauma code uh, and how is that going to help us, uh, can I don't know if it's worth talking about anxiety itself. What is anxiety? You know, how is it a problem and, and how can we address it in a healthy way when it's about real problems? So, you know, typically when I when I'll speak about anxiety, I like to introduce the topic by discussing fear. Right. So fear, it's a physiological process between your brain and other organs in the body. And, and it's intended to keep us safe, right? There are some chemicals that do their thing and we get the and we get the experience of fear. But that system can be overactivated as a result of genetics or life experiences, environmental factors. But fears can become anxiety uh, if they don't subside with time or if they impact daily functioning, then we'd be talking about like clinical anxiety. But 
climate anxiety, what we're talking about today is, or eco-anxiety as some others call it, is distress related to our use about the effects of climate change. It's not actually like mental illness, but it's rooted in an uncertainty about the future of this planet. And yeah, I feel like sometimes anxiety is like a little trigger, a little alarm that goes off. And I think some people lean on that as a crutch to try to uh, compel themselves to do something, but it can also be overwhelming in a way. So when we feel that little bit of, of fear or anxiety, what's a healthy way to deal with it? Um, well, there are different ways to deal with it. So one thing that I would say about anxiety in general and about climate anxiety is no different here. So you can invest some finite amount of time regularly or daily to think about about climate climate change. Um, and it, when I say invest some amount of time to think about it, at the outset, it might just be a little bit of panic, like, oh, man, what are we going to do? This is happening. The world's not, you know, folks are not taking enough action against this or to counter this. Um, but then eventually it might become a little bit more researching and understanding what climate anxiety, rather what climate change is, how it's impacting people, where one is and where it's impacting uh, people all over the world. And then a little bit later on, it can become mostly doing something about it. So it can be increasing public awareness, uh, protesting, taking fewer flights, using public transportation more. Um, so, so full disclosure, this episode is a little bit of therapy for me to deal with my climate anxiety. So thank you for bearing with us. Um, but, but I'm not alone. Um, I believe in Nature or Science, one of these big journals recently, uh, there was a global uh, a study of uh, global attitudes towards the climate crisis and what's being done about it, specifically looking at young people. I think their age group was 16 to 24, something like that. 16 to 25, I and, think. And it was really overwhelming uh, sense of not only anxiety but frustration and almost anger at the leadership of, of not responding to it. So this yeah, is... Can I just say one please. thing? So about, you're talking about globally, but even uh, Americans, about you know more than two-thirds of Americans experience some amount of climate anxiety. And uh, over the weekend, I was uh, with my in-laws, and, and they have a poster on the wall that, that says um, that we're borrowing the planet from our kids or from young people or generations to come, something like that. And, and that's kind of what we're seeing. These are the folks who are most worried about it. Um, I, I think 84% of kids age 16 to 25 said that they were at least moderately worried about, about climate change and what's going to happen to this planet. So it's theirs to live with, right? What are we going to do about it? Well, today, what we're going to do, we're going to get Darna Noor, one of the most important American journalists on this topic, in my opinion, right now, on the air about what's going on and what can be done about it. So let's have a little musical interlude while we get her on the air.
back to Trauma Code. This is Simon Fitzgerald here with my co-host, uh, Dr. Cassandra Raphael. Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, that song we were just listening to is Feels Like Summer by Childish Gambino, also known as Donald Glover. And our board engineer, Reggie, was just giving me a little bit of backstory on this song. I mean, we chose it because, obviously, it's related to uh, climate change, if you pay attention to the lyrics. Um, but, Reggie, do you want to tell us a little bit more about... Yeah, sure, sure. I mean, it, it, everything you said is correct, but it's one of those songs where people get lost in the groove and they're not really listening to the lyrics. Mm -hmm. And what I found out about this song was is that uh, it was inspired by a nightmare uh, of a nightmare. And if you hear real carefully in the song, it's talking about every day, every day is every day. It feels like summer. It's because it was his concern about global uh, climate uh, catastrophe where every day is 90 plus degrees. Mm -hmm. And this is supposedly this scenario was happening in the dead of winter. Mm. So our sort of uh, shared subconsciousness, this nightmare about uh, the climate crisis. But we have on the line, as I mentioned, uh, a, a notable climate reporter and editor uh, at the Climate Desk at the Boston Globe, uh, Darna Noor. Are you with us? Much for having me. Uh, can we put her up a little bit louder? Uh, I, I'm really happy to have you. And um, you know, welcome, Darna. Uh, Thanks so much. I, I feel maybe the need to justify a little bit why are we focusing on the climate? Our our uh, theme is trauma and trauma code. And obviously, there's a lot of psychologic trauma with uh, sort of the, the impending climate uh, catastrophe right. and, uh, ongoing. Um, but in addition, I feel like anyone, everyone, no matter what you do, climate is really change is going to be uh, central to your life, no matter what you do. You know, where where you choose to live, you know, um, how you choose to do business, where, you know, what history has taught us. Our understanding of the present is actually already the past as things are changing. And if you're not aware of what's going on and prepared to deal with it, then you're going to lose out. Um, so uh, definitely, thanks for coming on the air. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Um, also, feels like such an appropriate day to be playing. Feels like summer, um, you know, walking outside and uh, being greeted by the sun and the beautiful 75-degree weather where I live in Baltimore is... Uh, Pretty, pretty appropriate day, you know, in November to be listening to that song. So thanks for that, too. And uh, so, uh, and if you're, Darna, if you're uh, on speakerphone or can anyway get closer to the mic and get a little bit louder for us, that would be good. But what is, uh, you know, it's a big question, but as we sort of uh, confront our climate anxiety, what is the, the state of the climate crisis? What is going on and what should we expect uh, as, as sort of already baked into climate change in the in the future? Yeah, it's a really good question, and uh, I hope that you can hear me a little better now. Um, you know, so I guess it's the, the question of, you know, what we can expect on climate change kind of depends on what you're looking at. On the one hand, you know, just even a few years ago, um, the sort of projections for how bad climate change we're going to get were looking a lot worse. You know, like scientists were saying that um, we could see something like five degrees of warming, um, you know, in, in the coming decades. Uh, the world has already warmed by 1.2 degrees, and that might seem like very little, but that's obviously already triggered, you know, really catastrophic floods and heat waves and, you know, monsoons, hurricanes, things like this. Um, so, so, you know, it seems like the sort of worst-case scenarios are um, uh, something that we've sort of managed to avoid, which is a good thing. Um, but that's not the whole story. And I think that what's even more important in some ways is that despite that, uh, the effects of even just the amount of warming that we're seeing right now are in some ways, I think, worse than anyone could have predicted. You know, we're seeing really catastrophic um, changes that are being triggered by only a little bit uh, kind of, you know, a little bit in terms of how we just sort of generally think about um, the temperature each day, only a little bit of, of climate change. You know, if we um, are currently seeing, you know, these sort of huge, massive changes on a global scale after 1.2 degrees of warming. What does that mean for if we reach two degrees? Um, so, you know, I think that the, the question of uh, the question of how much worse it's going to get um, is is a really huge one, and it also, you know, totally depends on what we do now. I think the biggest thing that we've seen from climate science and you know from reports over the past couple of decades is that the biggest factor in our fate 
is what we do now. You know, how quickly we can uh, transition away from coal and oil and gas, how quickly we can prepare um, our cities and our, our countrysides for, uh, you know, the incoming of more climate disasters, um, you know, how quickly we can sort of band together uh, as nations and provide funding for, you know, those who might not be able to afford the big changes that they need to undertake uh, to sort of take on the climate crisis. These are the big questions that I think will be the determinants of our future. And, you know, part of that is I always think of, uh, you know, when you're thinking about the, the weather forecast, you know, they report a whole lot of snow and then all of a sudden it starts changing. It's not only important what they say the forecast is going to be, in my opinion, but sort of the rate of change. If if the number keeps going down on the amount of snow, it's going to be even less than they say when you go to sleep. And if the number keeps going up, it's going to be even more. So that, all that to say, what's the rate of change, you know, and part of that is um, sort of the admissions trajectory, um, are we moving in the right directions in terms of, of how we're contributing or, or mitigating climate change? Or are we moving in the wrong direction as it is? So, you know, again, it's sort of a complicated question. Um, I think that if we look at, you know, the trajectory, obviously, since like 1990 or since the Industrial Revolution, it's very clear that emissions are on a sharp increase. There was a period in 2020 where there were some reports that were kind of showing oh, you, you know, like carbon emissions are finally going down. Uh, 2020 is going to be a big change. Um, but obviously, you know, what else happened in 2020? There was a major kind of, uh, you know, other sort of crisis, the pandemic, that um, brought a lot of industries, especially polluting industries like, um, you know, manufacturing and, and travel and things like this to a grinding halt. And now we're seeing that global emissions since then are rising. Um, global electricity demand will increase by five, or will have increased by five percent last year, um, according to the sort of you know top, one of the top agencies that looks at this, uh, the International Energy Agency. Um, and so you know while we're not seeing as sharp an increase as we were before, uh, it's really really bad that um, that we're seeing more planet warming pollution at a time when it's very clear that you know that will only um, sort of bring more uh, catastrophe. And in, in terms of actions to uh, or movements to respond to it or to mitigate the effects of climate change, uh, I, again, these are kind of really big questions. But just to give us a lay of the land, um, you know, what is the the, the state of, of the response to the to the challenge that we see? I well, so to talk about the state of the response, there's sort of two things. One is that I think that people's individual responses in terms of, you know, the sort of responses that you talk about on this show, um, the sort of emotional and, and mental health response to this crisis has been massive. You know, there's studies every single day that show that rates of anxiety due to climate change, depression due to climate change, you know, just sort of stress um, and concern about climate change are through the roof, like at levels that we have not seen ever and that's you know all over the world among young people especially among young people but also among older people um so in that sense you know our sort of emotional responses are very high um part thank of you for bringing that, that up darna i just wanted to, to comment on that yes you're, you're absolutely right uh, there is climate anxiety but also depression related to climate change ptsd or post-traumatic stress related to uh, totally. climate change and for those who have actually experienced a natural disaster related to climate change a sense of hopelessness uh, and possible suicidality. Excuse me, possible suicidality. So, and struggling with these thoughts and feelings can lead to finding, you know, ways to cope that are not great. So, displacing aggression or you know substance misuse, it, it then becomes another mental health problem. Just That's a really, really good point. And I think that you know, as unfortunately as the climate crisis progresses, I think we'll continue to see more and more research that just shows like the number of. Um, sort of horribly unhealthy ways that we as a society are sort of grappling with these issues. These issues. So, right, yes, that's right. a really good point. Um, and, and again, I think, you know, sort of part of the reason that we see those kinds of responses is because, frankly, I think that a lot of people are sort of getting fed up with not being able to have systems that they can rely on. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I mean that, like, in the sense of hospitals that are getting flooded or, or having to, you know, undergo... Um, energy blackouts and things like that due to heat waves, you know, like sort of our physical infrastructure being threatened by climate change. But also, you know, the response of our world leaders has just been nowhere near enough to actually slow climate change at the rate that we need to. Like we're still expanding fossil fuel infrastructure. Um, we're still ignoring, you know, the sort of best data on climate change when we build cities and build new infrastructure and things like this. So, I mean, the response 
at that level has just not at all been what it needs to be. Um, and I think that that's part of the reason that we're seeing that response on the individual level that's coming with so much more anxiety, so much more depression, so much more sort of concern. Mm-hmm. And, and I think what um, some of the research, we mentioned uh, some of it but right before you came on, Darna, um, also talks uh, in, you know, what you're getting at is a loss of faith, not only in institutions, but sort of a generational rift. And I yeah. think that that's part of what we're seeing is that, you know, the the response is, is different. It's, I don't know if it's fair to say different in terms of young people or old people or what young people think should be done and what the people in a position of authority are doing. Um, and I think another interesting character while we're talking about the, the psychology or psychiatry of of climate change is um, Greta Thunberg, um, who's I think, I think she's Swedish, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And she's what you know what Dr. Raphael the term she taught me is neurodivergent. Some people would say she's on the autism spectrum, mm-hmm. and I think that contributes to why she could not be socialized to um, accept climate change and what people are doing and just be part of it. And instead, you know, we talk about the disruption of COVID, but she started school strikes because she felt so much disruption from climate change that she cannot carry on uh, her normal um, day-to-day and has become really an influential force globally in the climate movement. Yeah, I certainly don't want to speculate on what the sort of role of her um, neurodiversions has been in her trajectory, but she herself has said, you know, she's called her autism diagnosis her superpower. She said mm-hmm. that, like, you know, when I felt the most sort of uh, hopeless and sad, I didn't know that I had autism. I just knew that it didn't. I didn't want it to be like this. And so, you know, having a diagnosis for that almost like helped her get the support that she needed and um, helped her to grapple with that in a way that was healthy, but but also sort of didn't get in the way of her climate activism. Um, so yeah, it's an interesting sort of point to to think through. I appreciate that, Donna. That you that you say that she says that her um, her ASD or her autism spectrum diagnosis is. Is um is her superpower, and I mean that's kind of what you know, kind of a little bit on a tangent, but that's a little bit what the neurodiversity movement is about is about saying that people can think in different ways, and and it can be to the benefit of everybody else and themselves, um, and certainly Greta Thunberg is certainly out there uh, making making the important issue known, um, and if and, and hey, if that's what her superpower allows her to do, wonderful, we're here for it, we love to see it, mm-hmm. and uh, so. Darn, obviously this topic is always relevant in our lives. Um, but one reason that we decided to have you on uh, now is that there is an important, you know, there's been periodic climate change summits, uh, mostly through the UN. Uh, and there's one that's uh, starting right now, right in Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt. Yeah, absolutely. It just started yesterday, um, you know, convening like tens of thousands of people from all over the world to uh, address what to do about this issue. And, you know, so if people may come, this may come across their, you know, timeline or their uh, TV or, or whatever sphere of of, um, of of reference or influence that it has over them. Um, and one way that I've heard about it in the news uh, is the head of the UN, I think his name is uh, Guterres or Gutierrez, um, yeah. has been, ta- has been, and you can, you can say his name correctly and maybe clo- quote him more accurately, but has really been saying that... Um, you know, the trajectory right now is towards total chaos and catastrophe and that the response has been really inadequate. Pretty strong words, I think, for a kind of a leader in his position. Would you agree? Uh, yeah, I mean, absolutely. Um, Antonio Gutierrez, I, or Gutierrez, I guess it is, uh, we, we say sort of all the time at the Boston Globe that, like, he clearly has, like, one of the best speechwriters out there. Um you know, just like some of the most powerful call to actions of anybody in that kind of position that I've seen. Um, and, and frankly, you know, I maybe that means something about him, like, you know, all credit to like leaders who are sort of honest about the urgency of this issue. But I also think that it just really says something about the state of U.N. climate negotiations that somebody can, you know, sort of bring um, this like clear sense of urgency every time he speaks. You know, he'll very frequently call climate change a crisis. He'll say it's a cat- catastrophe. He'll say urgent action is needed. And then when leaders come together for these summits, um, for these UN summits, which happen like basically every year, uh, we still like often find in, in the climate world that we're disappointed with what the outcomes are. Um, so, you know, I, I'm glad to see that the rhetoric is sort of reaching that level. Um, and I would hope that. <laughs> That will also mean that the action will get there too. So, can you put this um, 
what are the COP27, is that what they're calling it? Can, yep. can you put that into historic context and give us a little bit of sense of what to expect from, uh, from this climate meeting? Yeah, definitely. It's a huge question and honestly one that um, I'm currently looking into. But to give the sort of basics here just really quickly, COP is it's called COP27 because it stands for Conference of the Parties, um, parties being the countries who essentially in the 90s pledged at the UN to establish an international treaty to, uh, to take on climate change, to lower emissions, to prepare for climate change in the future. Um, you know, so this is the 27th one of those meetings. Uh, these are the meetings that in 2015 gave us the Paris Climate Agreement, which obviously, you know, sort of changed the game for climate negotiations. Um, these are places where leaders are expected to gather and hammer out plans to address the climate crisis, both sort of on their individual national levels and, um, you know, to sort of work in cooperation with other nations. Uh, and while, like, you know, you might, I think that a lot of people who are listening may have sort of heard more last year about the big UN climate summit because last year's was like a big um, push to write new climate plans, whereas this year is more about implementation. So like last year was about what are we going to promise to do? This year is about and how exactly are we going to do that? So it's like what's called an implementation cop. And that always kind of it gets a little bit less media attention, uh, I think, sort of unfortunately. There's a lot of big issues, like there's just, you know, many, many big issues that countries are expected to get into. But one that I guess I'll just highlight is, um, you know, the sort of issue of climate reparations. I think especially because of, you know, floods in Pakistan this past year that were just like, devastating on a degree, to a degree that no one has ever seen before. Um, this like kind of question of who is supposed to be paying for the damages that climate change has wrought and whether that should be the rich countries who have emitted way more than poorer countries historically. Mm -hmm. Um, should be the ones to sort of uh, foot that bill. And and so, do we have any sense? Will there be any meaningful result uh, after a, you know a week or two of these negotiations that you know will have a meaningful impact? Yes and no. I think you know there's been already some progress. Um, for instance, this is the first time that uh, countries have sort of officially agreed to put this question of climate reparations um, or what's you know, officially called loss and damages on the agenda. So that means that countries have said, yes, we will officially agree to talk about what it is that we're going to do about the fact that um, poor countries in the global south are facing more uh, sort of immediate damage from climate change than rich ones are. And that's great. You know, it's a huge deal that countries have agreed to talk about this. But Agreeing to talk about something is not the same thing as agreeing to, like, an immediate plan. And so I think that's the sort of theme of all of these um, conferences. You know, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of pledging to do. Um, and I think where we need to see a little bit more is the actual doing, you know, is the um, accountability. You know, we, we pledge to do this. And if we don't do that, here's what will happen. Um, or, you know, we promise to be on the hook for this amount of money. So. I think, you know, some, some more sort of concrete plans are what I'm, I'm sort of hoping for. And the other way that, you know, news that I've heard about this conference, um, in addition to, you know, the statements of Mr. Guterres, is the kind of the political um, environment in which this occurs within Egypt. In other words, mm -hmm. um, you know, these the, the climate, uh, these, these summits are often the site of a lot of, of um, you know, um, what's the word I'm looking for, of, of like public influence, uh, at least attempts civil society to, to influence the, the climate action plans. But Egypt right now is not a place where it's safe to try to influence um, government uh, policy or initiatives, right? There's What I've read is that people who are perceived as a threat by the government at this time are simply disappeared. So how does that influence or what, is, what do we make of, of a climate summit within that environment? Yeah, it's a really huge question that I think a lot of folks uh, in the sort of climate world are thinking through right now. Um, you know, many people have sort of point, have pointed to the hypocrisy of uh, a nation that has sort of an abysmal human rights record that has been, um, you know, really sort of intolerant of uh, activists of all kinds, including climate activists. The hypocrisy of a nation like that agreeing to host a summit like this that's supposed to deliver major action. Um, you know, one sort of huge fight that's happening right now is uh, uh, a fight for the for justice for a, a, a British Egyptian activist whose name is Allah Abd El Fattah. 
um, who has been on hunger strike. And just today, on Monday, he, I think, announced that he was even going to forego drinking water. Um, so, or I guess it was yesterday on Sunday that he said that he would stop drinking water also. Um, he's a political prisoner. He was an activist who um, was put in prison uh, as sort of part of this oppressive regime. Um, and, you know, a number of activists, including, as you mentioned, Greta Thunberg, um, have been calling for him to be released. And so, you know, I think a sort of big question for climate activists and for the sort of climate movement more broadly in Egypt is how exactly to treat um, these questions of repression, especially because, you know, frankly, at, at a lot of um, these sort of climate summits in the past, a huge reason that a lot of folks will show up is to protest, is to sort of get in the streets and to say, you know, we're here to tell you that nothing that you will accomplish here is enough. We need more. Um, and I think that folks are finding that to be a lot harder in a nation where, uh, you know, the right to protest is just not protected. Anything else that you want to um, focus on or, or give us any thoughts about, um, you know, this, what's going on right now with the U.N. meetings around climate or what's going to be happening in the near future that uh, will be important and influential? Um yeah, I mean, I guess that one other thing that I'd sort of be remiss not to mention is that, uh, you know, one of the big things that a lot of people are hoping for is that countries will sort of up their plans to carry out climate to carry out climate action. Um, you know, so just to sort of give a little bit of context, um, the, there was a recent U.N. report that showed that even if nations met all of their current promises, um, we could see essentially like a level of uh climate catastrophe that would just be, you know, completely like obliterate coral reefs, um, mean that there were heat waves for billions of people that could make, you know, many kinds of crops obsolete, um, just like total climate catastrophe. And that's even if all countries' promises are met. And so, you know, I think one thing that is really important sort of context to keep in mind is that uh, we, we know that, like, even if we do if we, we're not doing enough right now. We're not keeping the promises that we've made um, as, you know, a global society, or rather, you know, the leaders of our global society are not keeping the pledges that they've made. But it's important to keep in mind that, like, even those pledges are not sufficient to win us a livable future. Wow. Um, and, you know, uh, it uh, is the day before Election Day, uh, at least here. Um, and uh, I, you may not be in a position to, to, to speak on, uh, you know, how people maybe should vote, but thinking what are what are actions that individuals and organizations can take to positively respond to the situation that you're describing it's such a hard question because on the one hand like i think what we've seen um with climate action it's a sort of big takeaway of everything that we've seen in terms of climate action is that individual uh actions will not cut it you know no matter how many people sort of individually decide to stop eating meat or stop driving cars or whatever it is, um, you know, too little, too late. not going to be. Yeah, exactly. There's not going to be like enough of that sort of individual action. And, and further, I guess I should also say, like, the idea that individuals should be responsible for action is a sort of propaganda tactic that the fossil fuel industry has used for decades. Um, you know, mm. the oil and gas industry have been at the forefront of saying that individuals should take action. But that said, like, I know it's horrible to sort of um, move through your day every day and say, oh, there's nothing I can do. And I don't I don't think that there's nothing you can do. I think the biggest thing that anyone can do is sort of um, make the changes that will sort of inspire people around you to also make changes or to create change on a bigger level. So whether that means, you know, sort of organizing your community around, uh, you know, specific sort of climate legislation, um, whether that means, you know, pushing to uh, have good green jobs in your community in, you know, either clean energy or, um, you know, the sort of infrastructure we need to build for the energy transition, um, you know, anything that we can do to sort of make sure that those jobs are, are fair and unionized, I think is really worth doing. Um, and, and also, frankly, I think that a really important thing that we can all do is just to remember that, like, uh, we are all in this together. I think that just like, you know, communicating with people in other countries, communicating with those who are seeing climate disasters that we might not be seeing in our everyday lives, um, remembering why exactly there's so much at stake, you know, remembering that uh, this isn't just about, like, facts and figures and statistics, but that there's real people on the line, um, and using that to propel yourself every day, I think, is a, is a huge thing that, um, that I would ask of everyone who's listening. And, uh, you know, the other news related to climate activism that people just casually interacting with the news may be aware of 
are these kind of performative protests around um, very expensive uh, artworks. I think some people threw, and I might have the details wrong, tomato soup on either a Van Gogh or a Picasso at a famous museum, although it was protected by um, a kind of a glass case and the the artwork itself wasn't damaged. Um, You know, uh, there's a lot of pearl clutching about this. That doesn't bother me, although I don't know how effective it is. I don't know if you have any commentary on, on, on that uh, movement that we've seen. I think I, I basically agree. Like, I don't know how effective it is. I also think that, um, you know, sort of putting more focus on a problem that you have with a climate protest than climate change itself or, like, the people who have perpetuated climate change, I think, is bad. Um, that said, I think that we're in a place right now where, like, we need to fight for the kinds of... I mean, and I, as a reporter, I can't, like... I'm not taking a position on what exactly these um, should be specifically, but, like, I just... I sort of generally think that, like, we're in a position where we need the kinds of uh, climate solutions and the climate, the kinds of climate movements that can bring more people on board. Um, and, and so we can sort of move away from this, like, oh, you know, climate change is, like, an issue that only rich people care about or that, you know... It's going to mean that people can't uh, drive the cars that they like or eat the foods that they like and things like this. I think that if we can put a little bit more focus on, like, here are the good things that we can deliver for people um, from climate action. You know, how much better would it be to have public transit in your community? How much better would it be to be able to access, like, locally grown healthy foods and things like this? Um, I think those are those are the kinds of things I'd like to see more of. I don't really, I feel like maybe an action like this alienates people, but I also think that you know, if it uh, if it garners attention, maybe that's good. I don't know. That was a very long-winded way of saying that I think that there's good and bad things about it. Well, I think what I also hear you saying, Darna, is that you kind of want to look in the direction that you want to go in. I mean, a lot of the climate uh, anxiety and worry is about, you know, all the, the bad things that are happening and what we can see happening, you know, all over the world. Um, that are climate catastrophes, but then, like, as you point out, just how much better would the community be if we could, dot, 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 you know, something that is um, green and helpful to everybody and kind of moving the movement forward. Um, I I kind of like that you're looking at it through a, you know, or you're encouraging everybody to look at it kind of through a positive lens that would impact change. Yeah, and I I think it's, I mean, it's really difficult for me to sort of grapple with how to do that without making it seem like this isn't, you know, an existential threat, like the existential threat that I think that's facing humanity right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that it's, it's possible to sort of be honest about uh, the dangers that we're facing and also to, like, sort of look at the opportunities that we have here to fix, you know, problems that are, you know, not only problems for, like, the climate, but also problems for, like, human flourishing and, like, you know, injustice and things like this. So, uh, Well, also maybe taking that that perspective will engage people who might otherwise not be engaged by what's going on. You know what I mean? Yeah, I would love to live in a world where even climate deniers could get on board for climate (laughs) solutions, you know, just for other reasons. Like, in, in some ways, it's like, if you want more electric school buses and you don't care about the emissions you just want them because they're healthier for your kids that's great you know uh, right and uh, i i am going to ask more uh darna for how you know your healthy responses to climate anxiety uh, but since you are not in a position to comment on voting i think that you know i will you know tomorrow's election day and there's a lot of problems with both of the major political parties uh democrats and republicans but I, I, you know, I've really been troubled. And sometimes we talk about climate deniers. Sometimes I don't think that they actually are in denial. I think that they have just made a calculation that uh, them and their children are going to be okay, and they're in a position to to um, to benefit or profit, however you want to say it, from inaction on this. Um, and I think what I wonder, think out loud. You know, we know that there's a big influence in the U.S. political and also in Brazil and in other parts of the world. Um, of politics is this kind of right-wing evangelical Christian, um, you know, political theocracy, you know, theocratic movement or whatever you want to call it. And I wonder how much our inaction on climate is influenced by a group who sort of embraces the rapture, you know, embraces the a coming apocalypse is, um, is why they may be at peace with inaction. I don't know if anyone has any, any thoughts on that, but that's my speculation. I'm feeling like that's it's a little a, bit a really... <laughs> 
feeling like it's a little bit of a Dr. Raphael feels like that's a bit much, but it's always it's well, always I mean, struck I mean me. hey, I've not ever thought about it, so maybe I need to sit with it a little bit longer. Uh Darna, your thoughts? <laughs> um no, thank you. Know, you. Okay, this is sort of an obtuse <laughs> answer to this uh, answer to this question, but uh, there's man. Okay, I've started to say this, and now I'm just going to say it. There is a long history of um, you know a sort of a relationship between uh, sort of evangelical Christianity and oil. There's a great book by uh, Darren Jochek about this called Anointed with Oil, um, and I guess what I will say is definitely not a coincidence that many of the people who we sort of see in this nation who are um, a part of the sort of most right, the rightmost wing of like, you know, Christian politics are also the ones who are fighting for more fossil fuel infrastructure. That said, you know, there's like tons of people, um, you know, on the left in religious movements who are also pushing for climate action. I think that that's really great. But I'll make sure know, not to I prejudge anybody just from their religious <laughs> affiliation. Let me say that also. For sure. But, like, a religious affiliation is different than saying that they're part of the Christian right in this country, and there definitely is such a thing as the Christian right. And they're also, you know, many of the same people who are pushing for the kinds of policies that will, uh, you know, ensure that we have, like, total climate catastrophe. So, You and Darn are giving me something to uh, look into here. Definitely. You, you don't sound so far <laughs> off from each other. So, um, so Darna, how, how, how about that? You know, the, the title of our show is Climate Anxiety. Here we are on Trauma Code on WBAI. And you've told us a lot as someone who spends your day studying uh, the climate crisis and activism and policy. Um, how do you deal healthily with, um, you know, what you must feel at times, anxiety towards the, the climate change and climate crisis? Yeah, I mean, uh, I think sometimes I don't deal with it very well. Um, I definitely have days where I feel totally overwhelmed and, you know, sort of helpless um, because of the stuff that I'm sort of reading every day, as, you know, as many of us are. Um, But I also think that I've sort of, you know, in my time covering the climate crisis, I've gone from feeling just most of the time to feeling anger you know the climate crisis Mm. is something that's not just sort of happening to us because of like humanity at large it's not something that's like all of our collective faults in the same way it's something that's being done to the earth um, and it's being done by um you know in many ways like people who have profited off of it um you know there is like there are real actors real corporations and things who are you know and not to say like oh this is because they're so evil or something but like you know, if it's your business model to make a thing and sell a thing that uh, is responsible for climate change, but you're making money off of it, and there's no government telling you not to do that, then you're going to continue to do that because it makes you money. And so I think, you know, sort of being fueled by anger uh, sometimes is a way that I've sort of learned to cope with these emotions um, and remembering that, like, you know, there is a future where um, ne- we're not going to get to a place where everything is like back to normal. You know, there are some things that are sort of baked in, even if we completely stopped uh, using coal and oil and gas and everything tomorrow, uh, you know, we'd still see the seas continue to rise. We'd still see more heat waves, things like this. But we can still have a world where things are a whole hell of a lot better than they are right now. Um, and there's lots and lots of opportunities to, you know, lower uh, pollution while also sort of making people's lives better in the process. So I think just remembering that there is uh, another world that's kind of out there um, is, is really important for me. And I guess that, uh, you know, that 2021 uh, sort of uh, dark comedy, Don't Look Up, um, that was uh, used kind of a metaphor of a comet uh, coming to hit the earth uh, for climate change. That's what it was able to take out um, to kind of make a farce of the situation, um, even though there was a little bit of, of bad faith acting in there. But that, that was, you know, that was sort of an act of God from beyond the solar system. And that's not what we're talking about here. Yeah, totally. Um, although I will say that that film definitely illustrated the uh, profitability part of this crisis, I think, better than any other one that I've seen. You know, the idea that we shouldn't stop a comet from hitting Earth because we could maybe profit off of the minerals that are in that comet is super, like, uh, you know, hits a little bit too close to home. Yeah, totally. um, so I guess that that could be my first uh, uh, movie recommendation. But whenever I have um, guests on, I definitely like to get any um, cultural recommendation, uh, book, f- 
film, music, performance art, anything that you would want to bring to our audience's attention that's uh, bringing you life right now? Yeah, you know, I, for a person who sort of spends so much time thinking about climate change, I think that I actually engage in, like, art about the climate crisis a little bit less than sometimes people would expect. That said, um, there was a really incredible novel that uh, came out earlier this year, I think it was, by uh, Rebecca Sherm called A House Between the Earth and Moon. Um, highly, highly recommend. Uh, it's like, it's a sort of new sci-fi uh, or cli-fi, I guess it's being called, um, novel that deals with these themes of not only climate change, but also like, you know, the role of tech companies in our world, um, you know, things like uh, gender divides. Um, and how those sort of intersect with, like, the need for climate action, um, highly, highly recommend. It's also just, like, really uh, compulsively readable and really funny. So that would be my recommendation. Well, thank you so much, Darna. Um, yeah, definitely something to look into. You said that's Rebecca Sherm, A House Between the Earth and Moon. That's right. And, and another book that I guess came up uh, that I'll, I'll have to look into was Anointed with Oil by Darren Doshuk. That's right. Yeah. All right. Thank, and this is a little bit off topic, but I think you and I have a mutual friend, Baynard Woods, um, who wrote yeah. a book in the last year or two, uh, I guess this year, called Inheritance, which was um, him coming to terms with uh, the legacy of white supremacist violence within his family in South Carolina. Um, you may have read this already, but I've been working my way through it, and I hope to have him on the show in the future to talk about it. And definitely my audience in New York, definitely look this up, Inheritance by Baynard Woods. Totally. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Baynard is a yeah, great, great friend and also like a huge sort of inspiration. Um, highly recommend that everyone read Inheritance. Excellent. Well, we have a couple more minutes on the show. Is there anything else that uh, you want to leave our, uh, us and our audience with, Darna? You know, since this is uh, a show that deals with, you know, issues of sort of trauma and mental health, I guess that I would also sort of encourage everyone to um, find ways to grapple with and, and handle their own climate anxieties in ways that don't sort of um, preclude, like, worry in a way that's very real. You know, sometimes I, I guess to put it another way, like, I sometimes will feel um, this tension between, like, I don't want to be so paralyzed by climate change that I can't live my life. I don't want to feel so anxious about um, climate change that, like, I can't, you know, respond to it. Um, and it's really hard sometimes, I think, to balance that with, like, the real concern that this isn't just, like, an anxiety um, that's based in nothing. You know, it's a real concern about, like, the, the world um, and the, the future of uh, humanity and, and all other living things on Earth. Um, so, you know, I guess that's it's a, it's a sort of question that I grapple with. And I, you know, if anybody has ways to... Uh, ways that they'd recommend dealing with it. I'd love to hear from you all. <laughs> I, I have actually, on, on that note, I have read recently of something called the Good Grief Network, which is like an organization that helps folks process their feelings related to climate anxiety and to connect with other people who kind of want to um, take meaningful action, whatever that looks like. If it's, you know, affecting how you live as an individual every day, but also raising public awareness about it. Um, they, they do a lot of this work, actually. But I think the, the processing of the feelings is, is, is an important piece. And also um, just, you know, just being in this community, supporting other people's decisions to make changes to their lifestyle or be vocal about it um, is also, you know, helpful. Totally. Yeah, it's amazing how much better it can feel to just know that you're not the only one experiencing this kind of dread. Um, Britt Ray, who's like a researcher who sort of works at the intersection of mental health and climate change, this is a huge takeaway from her work for me. It's like sometimes one of the best things that you can do is just, you know, sort of live in your anxiety with other people and remind yourself that like there's not it's not you. It's not that there's something wrong with you. It's that there's something wrong outside of you. And you can sort of stand together with other people who share that anxiety to do something about it. Right. Right. So I'm afraid we may have to leave it there. Uh, this has been Trauma Code, again, on WBAI. Thank you, Darna Noor. It's been a pleasure, Darna. Thank you. For joining us it's from the Boston Globe. Um, and uh, if you've come to listen and appreciate us, this is our third show on WBAI. Definitely, you know, we volunteer uh, to do this, and we uh, depend on the infrastructure that's in place. The bills need to be paid. So definitely you can support uh, the station and our show 
uh, mom, dad, feel free, uh, on WBAI.org or at 212-209-2950. Again, 212-209-2950. Thank you again from Trauma Code. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. There's nothing more refreshing than having a clean, crisp, clean glass of water on a warm summer's day. That cool, refreshing drink. Try it with your friends. New world water makes the tide rise high. Come in, land, and make your house go by. Fools done upset the old man river. Made him carry slave ships and fed him dead now it's belly full and he about to flood something. So I'm throwing rope that ain't tied to nothing. Tell your crew use the H2 and wise amounts. It's the new world water and every drop counts. You can laugh at the-